Peace be with you, church. I invite you to uh, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And today we begin in verse 27. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that as your church, as your people, we have this great opportunity, Lord, this joy of coming before you and worshiping you and hearing from your word. And Father, we just pray that you would be among, among us, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that you would open up our spiritual eyes to see that you always intend the best for your children, Lord. And Father, we just uh, pray that Christ would be Lift it up today, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you may be seated. Uh, before we begin, just a couple of reminders to you. This Friday is our Good Friday ser- service. Uh, this will be a Shorebreak Church Good Friday service, but you're welcome to invite others to join us as we uh, remember, as we reflect on the death of our Lord, and as we... Um, Uh, are going to partake of communion. We don't have communion today. We're going to partake of it on the Good Friday. And then Easter, um, on the Resurrection Sunday, uh, this coming Sunday, we will have a service with Kona Bible Church here at 10 o'clock, and we will not have a service at 4 o'clock in the evening. So just just to let you know, do not come at 4 o'clock, but come and celebrate with all of us uh, at 10 a.m., Um, In our text today, we have what is often called one of the most radical teachings of Jesus. Um, Show of honesty, show of hands, how many of you cringed as we read this text? How many of you felt kind of uncomfortable hearing the words of Jesus? I see a lot of raised hands. They're still raising. I'll tell you something. That uncomfort, that's our flesh, 
Our flesh doesn't like what Jesus is saying. And to the rest of you who did not raise your hands, you, there's one explanation. You must be hypocrites. Huh? You're telling us that you've reached perfection. We all know that's not true. But seriously, these words of Jesus, they go against every grain of our flesh. He calls us to do the opposite of what we desire to do. Last week we looked at the last beatitude that Luke gave us. We find this in verse 22 where Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Jesus says, Blessed are you when this happens to you. And we saw that the uncompromised declaration of the word of God. When we do not compromise on the word of God, it will always bring about a response of hate from the world. And Jesus describes it this way. This is found in um, John chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus says, the light has come into the world. The light is Jesus, it's the word of God becoming flesh. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus says people love their sin. They love their life of wickedness, and they love it so much that they would rather die in their sin than come into the light and accept Christ. And Jesus, Jesus uses this strong word, hate. He says the wicked hate the light. They despise the light. They run away from the light like cockroaches when you turn on the lights in your kitchen. And so, what this means is, if you and I, if we represent Christ, which we're supposed to as Christians, if without compromise we hold on to and declare the word of God, naturally, we will be hated. You will not be spoken well of. We see this reality in Jesus' life. We see this reality in the life of the apostles, and we see this in the life of the early church. Again, they were very loving, gentle people. Yet they were hated because they obeyed Christ and called others to Christ. And so, the question is, how do we respond to this hate? How do we respond to our enemies that hate us? And here is what Jesus teaches. Here's the radical command. He says, love your enemies. This was radical for the people during Jesus' time. This is still very radical for us today. For the Jews, think of their political context. They were under the rule of Rome. The Jews were infiltrated by Gentiles, and the Gentiles took their lands, they taxed them, 
They abused them. They were their enemies. And never did the Jews think about loving them. For the Jews to love their enemies was never a consideration. They were taught to hate their enemies, to kill their enemies. They thought they were supposed to love God and to love their neighbor, and never did they consider that their enemies are their neighbors that they are supposed to love. And here is Jesus. He's teaching these Jews that the Romans, that the Gentiles that oppress them and abuse them, these enemies, they're also their neighbors that they are supposed to love. Jesus expands this definition of neighbor. This was a radical teaching in the time of Jesus. It upset a lot of people. And so what I want to do with you today is spend some time dissecting this command, love your enemy, particularly the love part. Jesus says, love your enemies. And so that's the main point. If you're taking notes, this is, this is the main point. And whatever follows below that, after the statement, love your enemies, these are subpoints. These are explanations of how we are to love our enemies. So love your enemies is the main point, and what follows defines to us how we are to love them. And when we look at this list that Jesus gives us of how we are to love our enemies, nowhere do we see Jesus calling us to some sort of a feeling or affection towards these people. We don't see that. But this love is defined by action. In the words of John Mayer, he says, love is a verb. <laughs> and today in our culture, we have been trained. It's been drilled into us that love is some sort of a feeling. We have been told that you have to feel something, some sort of an affection towards another person in order for it to qualify as love. And only after you get this feeling are you supposed to then go and act on it with action. That's what our culture tells us. Jesus here does not have that kind of love in mind. He isn't telling us to have some kind of a feeling or tingling sensation towards our enemies. As we see, Jesus teaches us that loving our enemies is expressed through action. He defines this love by action. Loving our enemies means we act lovingly towards them. And listen, is it good for us to also have affection and some sort of emotion of love come alongside action? Isn't that good? It is, absolutely. Affection is important. But what we have done as a culture is we have reduced the entire concept of love to a feeling. If I could bring up an example, if moving towards others in love is like driving a car, our culture tells us that the feeling of affection should be the driver of that car. Everything else goes into the back seat. 
It's what our culture tells us. This is very important for us to understand because most of the time, here's what we do. We don't move towards others in love with action unless we feel like it. And it's because we have reduced love to a feeling that we refuse to act until we feel like we must act. We're waiting for that feeling of love to come over us. And somehow we also bought into this idea that if we show acts of love without feeling love, then our actions are not loving. And here Jesus is showing us how to love our enemies. And feelings are nowhere in sight. Over the past few weeks, looking at the teachings of Jesus, we've spoken about this reality in all of believers, this reality of war that is being waged within us, the war between the spirit and the flesh. Everything Christ calls us to do is life according to the spirit. And guess what? Everything Christ calls us to do, our flesh, it doesn't like it. To put it another way, our flesh has a bad feeling about the teachings of Christ. Galatians 5.17, Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. The scripture is clear. The flesh is in opposition to the spirit. This means that the flesh does not like, it does not feel good about obeying Jesus. It does not feel good about loving our enemies. And here's the danger. If we define love as primarily a feeling that must come over us before we act in love, we will never get around to loving our enemies. That is the danger. It's dangerous to wait for our flesh to align with God's call to obey because our flesh will never align. A lot of us are waiting for some sort of a feeling to come over us before we move towards godliness. I'm going to read my Bible when I finally feel inspired to read my Bible. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I'm not going to do it. We're a culture that is moved by feelings. I don't feel like doing devotions with my family right now. I feel like watching a show. So I'm going to put my kids to bed real quick, and I'm going to watch a show. Church, the flesh will never desire what God demands of us. Therefore, if you are waiting around to begin feeling like doing what God is calling you to do, it's never going to come. Your flesh is at war with the things of the Spirit. It will always have a bad feeling about the things of God. Do not wait for that feeling to come because it never will. You can bargain with your flesh all day long. You can wait it for happen. 
But guess what? It's not going to come. There's only one way to deal with the fruit of flesh. Paul says it has to be crucified. We've got to get violent with it. Paul says, I put my flesh to death every single day. When it comes to the life of obedience to Christ, we should never consult with our flesh. And doesn't our flesh have a lot of opinions? It has a lot to say about what we should and should not do. My flesh had a lot to say when I was reading this text throughout the week. And the reason why we're spending so much time trying to define this, looking at the way our culture defines love as primarily a feeling versus what Christ is calling us to do here, is because our flesh is very deceptive. It is very manipulative. It will find every excuse why you should not obey Christ. And most of it will come down to, I don't feel like it. And then we begin to justify it. Today, there's this very popular way of justifying your flesh. We hear this all the time. I want to be authentic. I want to be genuine. I'm not going to just act and do something and and force myself. I'm going to be authentic to who I am. I'm going to wait for it to be inspired, for my flesh to be inspired to move towards other people. It's not going to happen. Our authentic, genuine flesh needs to be crucified, church. It's the only way to deal with it. And so, what Jesus is going to call us to do right now, what he's going to require of us, the way he is going to call us to love our enemies, your flesh will never desire to do this. Everything Jesus will say right now is cringe to us. Let me tell you something. There is nothing here that is rewarding to the flesh. The rewards are all spiritual. And it is because the flesh does not inherit the kingdom of God. Also, before we look at how God calls us to love our enemies, we've got to realize that everybody has an opinion. And people have different ideas of how this love should look like. And here's the world's opinion of how we should love them. If we ask our enemies, if we ask the world who hates Christ, how should we love you? This is what they will tell you. If you want to love us, stop lighting up the sky with the light of Christ. Stop exposing our sin and corruption. Approve and affirm what we are doing and only then are you loving. This is, the war, this is what, the, what kind of love the world wants, okay? And this is not the kind of love that Christ calls us to. Listen, if we do this, if we love the world by the way it wants us to love them, we will not have enemies in this world. 
but our enemy will be God. And that is worse than the other way around. And so, having said all that, let's look at how we are to love our enemies. What actions is Jesus calling us to take towards them in love? He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. From one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. If you're like me, your fairness meter is in the red zone. It's screaming injustice. We got to throw that meter out the door. This is a call to treat people in a way that they do not deserve. Look at Jesus. Throughout his life, he was falsely accused. His name was constantly dragged through the mud. He was unjustly arrested. He was condemned. He was beaten. He was killed. All while he was serving and loving people and proclaiming truth. And the truth is what they did not like. In one of his last prayers on the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We have a great example in Stephen, Acts chapter 7. He's hated for proclaiming Christ. Again, he's also falsely accused, falsely arrested. We read that they hate him so much that they are grinding their teeth at him. That's how much hate they are overfilled with. And as he's being stoned, he prays, Father, do not hold this sin against them. What kind of love is this? Your enemies brought you to the town square or outside outside the town. They're chucking rocks at you. They are filled with hatred. They are killing you. And he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What kind of love are you supposed to be filled with to pray those words at that time. As we look at Paul and all the other apostles, also false accusations, false condemnations, they were hated, abused, cursed. They were beaten. Their things were taken away from them. And they respond with blessing, with prayer, with good. And so we, we have the examples, church. We have examples of this kind of love, of this kind of a response. And we've got to be clear here. If you're being hated, if you're being abused and cursed at and spoken evil of because you're a jerk or because you've mistreated people, you deserve it. 
you need to go repent, make it right with those people. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The hate, the abuse, and the cursing that Jesus is talking about comes from undeserved mistreatment. Undeserved unkindness. Undeserved misunderstanding. You did not do anything bad to receive this kind of treatment, and yet you are receiving it. You can experience this at school, at work. You can experience this in your neighborhood, in your family. It could be because of some sort of certain beliefs or convictions that you hold. It may come your way because of your lifestyle. You refuse to participate or do certain things that the people around you are participating in. All of those things can cause some sort of mistreatment, unkindness, and misunderstanding from the world. The most sure way to receive this type of mistreatment is to represent Christ. Is to speak of Christ and his truth. Darkness hates light. And so you will be mistreated, church. And so when we are mistreated, what is our common response? We are Christians, so we don't respond, we don't respond with retaliation. But what do we do? Here's what we often do. We're quick to defend our name. We're quick to explain why we do not deserve this type of treatment. Justify ourselves. We can act like victims. Often we withdraw. We stop associating with, we stop talking to people that mistreat us. We change jobs, move to a different neighborhood, a different school. But here's how Jesus commands us to respond. He says, do good to those who hate you. Think about this. How do you treat your friends? How do you treat the people that are special and close to you in your life? How do you treat them? How do you think about them? You love them. You want to hang out with them and you want to do good to them. Jesus says, that's the kind of goodness and care that you should direct towards the people who hate you. It says, bless those who curse you. Cursing here means that these people, they declare evil over you. They want the worst things to happen to you. And so they curse you. They're wishing you the worst. And they mean it. And Jesus says, Bless them. Blessing is the complete opposite of cursing. It's to desire ultimate happiness for them. It's not to spite them. Well, I bless you. It's an actual position of our heart to bless them, to wish them prosperity from the bottom of your heart. And they don't even have to know about it. Jesus says, bless them. Pray for those who abuse you. When people abuse you, it means they mistreat you. 
It's when someone gains at your expense. It's when they use you for their own good at your loss. It means they win, you suffer, and lose. And Jesus says, pray for them. Continually bring them up before the Lord. And trust this abuse into his hands. And we see this in the life of Christ. He says, do not, Father, uh, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, the prayer of Stephen. Prayer of Christ. The greatest victim of abuse. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Continuously bring them up before the Lord and trust the abuse into his hands. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. From the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Basically, Jesus is saying, let them have their way. Allow them to get away with their mistreatment. And do not just allow them to get away with it, but give them more than what they desire to take away from you. Give them more. It's radical. Our flesh hates this. Our fairness meter screams injustice. I'm never going to allow myself to be mistreated this way. Verse 31, Jesus says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is a great verse. We often call this the golden, the golden rule. As you wish to be treated, treat others also. But what we've done with this verse is uh, we've turned it into a motivational speech for ourselves. We use this verse to give ourselves, to give others a pep talk. Sometimes use it for our kids. Hey, you want to be treated well? Treat others well. And you will also be treated well. We use this verse in a very self-serving way. We center it around us. We will be treated well if we treat others well. We use it as a motivation to do good to others because we get something back in return. We gain from treating others well. But this is not how Christ intended for us to use this verse. This is simply to be a gauge, a starting point to think about how we are to treat our enemies. We want to be treated with dignity. We want to be treated with respect. We want to be loved. And so Jesus says, treat your enemy the same way. Treat him with dignity. Treat him with respect. 
love them. And that's it. This verse was never meant to motivate you to do good to other people. And we know this if we read verse 32 and 33. Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Do good, expecting nothing in return. And so Jesus here gives us a comparison of two systems of economics. Christian versus the world, where Jesus refers to them as sinners. The sinners, economics works this way. I will do good to you if you do good to me. I love those who love me. Treat others well, and you will be treated well as well. I treat others well because I will be treated well. And in general, this principle works. This is the worldly principle, though. And Jesus tells us that this is not a Christian principle. This is how sinners relate to one another. They do good to one another because they want the same to be done to them. But we are to have a different mindset. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for your abusers. Give away. Lend. Expecting nothing in return. That's the Christian economics. Once again, your flesh will never be on board for this. Your flesh always wants something in return. The only we can get our flesh to do something good is if it gets something good in return. And with some discipline, we can get our flesh, we can get it to submit to treat others well, to be treated well as well. But it will never desire to love an enemy, expecting nothing in return. But that's the Christian economics. If we go back to our car example, if moving towards others in love is like driving a car, and our culture tells us that our feelings of affection should be the driver of that car, Jesus tells us the kind of love we are to have is not based on feelings or affections. That's not going to get us very far with the kind of love that he's calling us to. Jesus also tells us that the motivation or the driver in that car should not be a desire to treat others so that you would be treated as well. And so the question is, who should be 
the driver in that car? What should drive us? What should motivate us? Where do we get the conviction to love our enemies in such a way that we get nothing in return? How can we move forward boldly and loving people in such a way that not only do we get nothing in return, but we lose? Where do we find the power in doing that? Here Jesus gives us three, three motivations to love our enemies. If you're taking notes, I'm calling them, first one is reward, second is identity, third one is gospel. First, Christian economics are not measured by the worldly economics. Verse 35, Jesus says, again, love your enemies, do good, expecting nothing in return. And then he says, and your reward will be great. To love our enemies in this way, to do good, to lend, to give away, expecting nothing in return, this is foolishness and stupidity in the economics of this world. This is wasting your time and your efforts. It's foolishness for this world. Yet while we expect nothing in return, Jesus says we will receive a return. And this return will come from a place that actually matters The reward, the return will come in the life to come in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says this reward will be great. Church, everything that we gain in this world, everything we gain based on the worldly economy will stay here and it will not follow us in the life to come. But God calls us right now in this life to invest into the economy of his kingdom. And one of the greatest ways that we can do that is by loving our enemies, expecting nothing in return. Jesus calls us to understand. Jesus calls us to be wise. He calls us to see what's at stake here. Not to settle for mere Satisfaction that's going to come in this life, but to set our gaze on eternity and know how great our reward is. And the suffering of this life will be worth it. Second motivation is identity. Only the sons and daughters of the Most High can do what Jesus calls us to do. Love our enemies. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. As children of the Most High, our identity is not rooted in worldly success. It's not found in a good name that we can build for ourselves. Our identity is not rooted in the fact that everybody speaks well of us or that we are accepted and loved by this world. 
but our identity is in the fact that we are sons and daughters of the Most High. That's the priority. Our identity lies in the fact that God loves us. The Most High cherishes us. And we live to please, obey, and honor our Father and no one else. We do not live to please, obey, and honor this world. Only His opinion matters. We represent Him and we are hated because we are We represent him. I like how Jesus calls God the most high. In other words, he's the final authority. No other opinion matters. Church, when our identity is rooted in the most high, we can begin to reflect the character of our father. And our father is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He is patient. He is long-suffering. Matthew puts it this way. The same Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew's words, he expands this and he says, For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We can respond in kindness to the hate, to the abuse, to the cursing of our enemies because our self-esteem, if, if we may call it that, is rooted not in being accepted by this world, but in the fact that we are already accepted, loved by our good Father. Lastly, the most important motivation of all is the gospel. Verse 36, Jesus says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Mercy is judicial language. It's a legal word. To receive mercy means that you have done something bad. You have violated some sort of a law, and you deserve a penalty. You deserve judgment. You deserve punishment, yet you receive mercy, which means you have been forgiven. You receive mercy and not justice. You don't receive the punishment that you have deserved. That's what mercy means. And in the case of us and our sin against God, the penalty for our sin is death. And what does God do? God is merciful to us. God forgives our debt. He does not serve us the justice that we deserve. He has mercy on us. And the Bible is clear about who we were before we received this mercy. Romans 5, verse 8, Paul says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Church, when we were in our sin, Paul says we were enemies of God. That's who we were. That's what defined us. We were enemies of God. We hated him. We hated his way. We hated his word. It was cringe to us. We wanted to run the other way. We cursed him. We abused him. We misused his blessings for our gain. We, take, we took pride in our achievements and accredited to ourselves. We took all of his kindness. We used it for our gain. We worshipped ourselves and we worshipped the gifts rather than the giver. We were enemies of God. And in response to our rebellion, in response to our hatred, he was good to us. He blessed us. Jesus prayed for us. He took our sin and shame on himself, and for our sin, he was struck. And in response to our hatred, God showed us mercy. And we see this mercy when we look at Jesus. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, he reconciled us. And he had nothing to gain. God had nothing to gain from this transaction. There is nothing that we can give him that he already does not have. Yet he loved us while we were enemies and he had mercy on us. Let me ask you, is this fair? Is this just? Why should an innocent man die for sinners who are his enemies. How is that just? It's not. It's not just. Yet instead of giving us the justice that we deserved, God loves us, his enemies. And he makes us his friends. Back to our example of driving a car. I don't know if it makes sense. But again, if moving towards others in love is like driving a car, the only motivation that is qualified to drive that car, to sit in that driver's seat, is the mercy that we have received from our God. 
It's the only motivation that qualifies. That is the only motivation that will get us far. It's the only motivation that is able to enable, to, that is able to give us the power to love our enemies. Everything else fails in comparisons. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Love your enemies just like God loved you while you were his enemy. When you realize how horrid and how offensive your sin was towards God, when we realize that, when we see how appallingly horrible our sin was, only then will you appreciate and be in awe. Only then will you be filled with thanksgiving of the mercy that Jesus displayed to you. Your ability to show mercy to others will grow as your appreciation for God's mercy towards you grows. It's the only way. And lastly, this is the last, lastly. Let's go back to this false idea of love being the feeling. This idea that love is a feeling that should inspire us to move towards others in action. The greatest act of love in the history of the world is the cross, wouldn't you agree? It's the greatest act of love. There is no greater act of love. The cross, it's the definition of love. And before his death, Jesus wasn't stoked. He wasn't pumped saying, all right, let's do this. I'm excited. Finally got this feeling come over me, this affection. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm pumped to do this. That didn't happen. Here's what happened. It was completely the opposite. Jesus is in the garden, and he's having a battle within himself. His will versus the will of the Father. And Jesus didn't even have a sinful flesh to manipulate him or mislead him. It was his will or the Father's. And Jesus, in this hard moment, it's one of the hardest moments that he had, submits and obeys the will of the Father. And so church, the greatest act of love was an act of obedience against his will. It was submission it was submitting his will to the will of the Father. That was the greatest act of love. And today we all benefit from Jesus' obedience. Church, let's respond to God's mercy with obedience and show mercy to others. We, don't have, we do not have to wait for a feeling. Don't wait for it. Hang that flesh on the cross. Obey the words of Christ. 
walk in the Spirit, looking to Christ, looking to the mercy that he had towards you, and have that mercy also to those around you, especially those who mistreat you and hate you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord, and it's often it's so hard for us to understand this, Lord, because we have this war within us. Our flesh hates this with every being of it, Lord. And yet you call us to obey, to submit to you, to the call that you have for us, Lord. You call us to, Lord, to wage war against it and to walk in the Spirit, Lord. So often, Lord, we, our priorities and um, our values are based on the systems of this world, Lord. I pray that you would rewire our minds, that we would see how much better is your way, how much better are the economics of the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to do this um, great, maybe even irresponsible act that you call us to do, to love our enemies at a loss. Help us to see that we gain so much in your kingdom, Lord. Equip our minds with that, Father. Do that work. We need help. We're unable to do this on our own, God. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you had towards us. We thank you for the obedience of Jesus. We thank you that he has submitted to you, that he went on the cross, and that he did this difficult task of dying for us so that we may have mercy and life. Father, may we just be appalled. May we be in awe of what Jesus has done. May our hearts overflow with joy and thanksgiving. And may we also respond to those around us with such mercy and love. I pray that you would do this in our lives, God. That your word would be alive in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.